Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. I'm Michael Hidalgo, and it is so good to be back together after taking uh, some time off this summer. Every year, I take some time away from my normal schedule, take some time off the grid, away from social media and all of that. And I do that to rest and renew and read and study and write and prepare uh, for multiple things, preparing for the upcoming year of teaching at Denver Community Church uh, and preparing for this, the season three of the Changing Faith podcast. And so I hope your summer was great. And uh, I'm so thrilled because now we're starting with a three-part series titled I'm Still Here. It's about why uh, for right now I'm still comfortable with calling myself a Christian. And before we get to that, two things I want to share with you. First, I'm going to be a part of the Evolving Faith Conference that's here in Denver, Colorado, October 3, 4, and 5. And on October 3rd, along with my friends Paula Williams, Jenny Morgan, and Jasper Peters, uh, we're going to host a one-day pre-conference focusing on leading change and conversations about change. And uh, we'd love to have you join us for this conversation. There's still space though I know it's filling up, uh, but you can go to evolvingfaithconference.com backslash pre-conference and learn more and register there. We'd love to have you join us. Second, second thing I want to share is that in just under two months, I'm hosting the first ever blueprint retreat. It filled up way faster than I thought. And so there's now a waiting list and those who are on the waiting list, um, if a spot doesn't open up for this coming retreat in November, they will, uh, you'll have the opportunity or they'll, they'll have the opportunity to be the first ones to register for the blueprint retreat that I'm doing in the spring. And so if you want to be on the wait list, or if you want to be like the first ones in line for the next retreat, send me an email, uh, full name, address, and, uh, just title it, like put the subject line, like blueprint retreat wait list, and I will add your name to it. And so you will have a chance to register before anyone else. And uh, we'd love to have you join us there. You can send the email to info at michael-hidalgo.com. But for today, season three, here we go. As I said, the title of this three-part series is I'm Still Here. And it's about why I'm still comfortable being called a Christian, why I still identify as a Christian. I hold the, two, the term way more loosely um, than I ever have. Um, but this is still where I am at. And so what I want to do over the next three parts is um, reflect on why. Now, these three parts are not three different reasons why. While each episode will be kind of a standalone, my idea is that they'll build on one another. And so hopefully you'll have time to listen to all three versus just one. And the first part today, what I want to talk about is the larger Christian tradition. We can call it the capital T Christian tradition. Um, contrasted with the small lowercase t tradition that I grew up in, maybe it'll be similar to the tradition that you grew up in. Then the second part, uh, we're going to reflect on the historical Jesus and his interaction with religion, where it seems that sometimes like he's really invested in uh, the Judaism and the Jewish traditions of his day. And other times he seems to be pulling himself away from it. He's injecting new meaning and doing all sorts of things. And how are we, uh, how do we witness what Jesus is doing with religion and use that kind of to invite us into wisdom to navigate religion uh, in our day? And then the third part will be how the Christian tradition, the capital T Christian tradition, 
like any healthy tradition, invites us to go beyond itself into something larger. And so, like I said, my hope is each episode will stand on its own, but at the same time, it'll be a a longer conversation in three parts. Now, I'm starting season three here because over the summer, I received several questions and a few requests for responses regarding Christian leaders or influencers or pastors who have, in uh, according to some, fallen away from the faith. Now, most notably, there was a uh, there's a guy named Josh Harris. Josh wrote a book more than 20 years ago titled "Ika's Dating Goodbye." It was a smash hit within conservative Christian circles, and uh, this led John to go on and speak and write and influence many. And uh, not too long ago, maybe around a year, I don't remember the exact time frame, um, he came out and said. Uh, that he was sorry that he wrote the book, wrote the book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. And he um, recognized that it did some damage and that it's not really what he believed. And I mean, there was a whole kind of series of apologies. And then in July, 2019, just a couple months ago, he came out again and said, announced on Instagram that he was getting a divorce. And then a day or two after that, he came out and said, he's no longer calling himself Christian. Now there was all kinds of responses over this because he was a fairly high-profile Christian leader, influencer. I think he might have even been a pastor. And um, then Marty Sampson. Now, Marty Sampson's of Hillsong fame. He was a worship leader in that whole network. He posted something on Instagram saying he was genuinely losing his faith and in doing so felt freer than ever. And again, all kinds of responses. And I want to say Marty Sampson, a few days after that initial post, uh, posted a second time and was like grateful for the overwhelming Christian response that was deeply loving. And I, I just point that out because there's so much, we have like this weird tractor beam toward negative energy. And yet Marty Sampson's like, whoa, whoa, wait, no, no, no. Um, I, I'm sure there was some negative people, but overall he's like, I feel deeply loved by my Christian brothers and sisters. And so given these two things that happened back to back, I was asked um, by a lot of different people um, hey, what do you think about that? And Or what do you think about them? And what do you think is happening? And so um, I didn't answer, actually. Uh, there was one response that I gave, and but I steered away purposely from any kind of speculation uh, and any kind of conjecture about um, Samson or Harris because I don't know them. <laughs> and in my opinion, conjecture and opinion and speculation isn't helpful. And I don't actually, not only do I not know them, I'm not familiar with any of their work. I knew of this book that Josh Harris wrote way back when I was still in college. Um, But it did get me thinking when people were asking me these questions of like, why am I still here? Why am I still calling myself a Christian? Uh, Why have I, like, am I genuinely losing my faith? Like it just kind of was a moment of self-reflection for me. And, um, while I can't respond to what uh, pushed Harris to where he is or led, I should say, led him to where he is or or led Samson to where he is, um, the one thing I am familiar about is the culture that they were immersed in because this is the same subculture, small T Christian tradition that I was immersed in, specifically conservative evangelicalism, more specifically white conservative evangelicalism. And this is where I want to start today is contrasting that with the larger Christian tradition, because I, uh, I left that small Christian tradition too, but I'm still here. 
I'm still calling myself a Christian. And I, I start there because one of the things that's not helpful in conversations about being a Christian is using that term almost exclusively to refer to the small religious tribes we've conceived in our world. I had a conversation with a friend recently who said, yeah, I'm not calling myself a Christian anymore. And I said, well, what does Christian mean? And he's like, and I said, well, like what kind of Christianity? He's like, well, I'm referring to the Christianity that I've experienced. And for him, it was a mix of like Pentecostal, uh, like um, uh, prosperity gospel kind of Christianity. That's what he's referring to. So he's like, oh, I'm not calling myself that. And so when we start by using the word Christian, which is a term that like covers a lot of territory to like refer only to this one small expression, I found that it's not helpful. And not only is it not helpful, but because we take this large term and apply it to a small group, it's almost as though we're saying like, this is what Christianity has always been. Now, again, we're not saying that um, intentionally, but this is what can come out. And it's really helpful to remember that whatever the small religious tribe we were a part of, uh, at some point, this small religious tribe were brand new. Now, I know that's not like an earth-shattering insight. You're like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I'm going to retweet the, the Changing Faith podcast. Like, no, but they were brand new, which means there at one time was a larger dominant Christian tribe or a larger dominant Christian expression. And the the tribe that you were a part of, if you were ever a part of one, at some point said, yeah, I think we're done with this, this larger expression. And we're going to venture out and do something brand new. We're going to go out and we're going to start something, which means that all these tribes, they had their beginning somewhere. And I imagine that people who were a part of the larger dominant Christian expression, the larger dominant Christian tribe, looked at this new expression and were concerned, looked at this new expression and had genuine questions. There were some within this larger dominant tribe who looked at the people that were leaving the church that their grandparents had been a part of and said, I think they're falling away from the faith. And for the people who were leaving, they're like, no, we're, we're going to something new. It's this new expression. There's new things we've added. There's some things that we've dropped off, um, but we have to go. And it's super important to remember because every denomination, every church, every system, network, however you want to call it, they all had a start and each one represented something brand new. Now, what happens over the course of time, like in any institution, is you have the people who begin it and there's kind of this like pioneering spirit. There's a lot of energy and excitement and everything else. And then you start adding on some generations. And so these people who started, they have kids and then they grew up in the tradition and their kids have kids. And eventually it's kind of like, man, we got to make sure that we set up some ditches here and put in some boundaries so that this thing that we've given birth to, um, that it can keep going beyond us. And one of the ways the modern world has figured out how to do that is we write things down. And so we codify our beliefs, we document our laws, we create bylaws, we have articles of incorporation, then there's the rules for belonging, there's our doctrinal statement, there's buildings, there's how we raise money and how much money we need, then we maybe create a denomination out of it, or we at least create a network out of it, whatever it is. And 
What happens over time is that the pioneering spirit that created this thing now becomes a spirit of making sure that it stays what it's always been. And so now you have guards and guardians and people that ensure we're going to do this thing right. We're going to honor those who've come before us. And there, there becomes a very subtle resistance to any kind of change, any kind of flexing, any kind of like, hey, why don't we delete that sentence uh, that was written down and add something new in there or just toss it all together. And then what happens is it evolves even into a, a further uh, way of thinking, which is this. This is Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian is this thing that we're doing right here. Look at the laws, look at the code, whatever it is. And what can begin to happen, and it doesn't happen everywhere, is we've got it right. This is what's true. Like this, what we're doing here, this is what God wants. They forget that at one point they left a denomination that said this is what God wants and started a new denomination or new thing because they thought, well, no, that's not what God wants. God wants this. And now they've become the very thing that they left. Oh, and this happens, by the way, over a lot of generations. And it's kind of this belief like, man, this is the church Jesus would go to if he was still kicking around on the planet. And I, I bet you he'd be an elder. He'd probably teach like, you know, a few times every, every year. Uh, and, and once you do that, you then are forced to differentiate yourself from anyone else who thinks differently. Because if you think we've got it nailed down, well, then they don't. So right away, there's a difference. I experienced this when uh, the first time I was kind of aware of it was when I was in middle school. And I was in, uh, my parents moved from New York to Michigan and they moved right at the beginning of the summer. And there was some excitement about going from one place to another and you know, said goodbye to all my friends in New York. And then we made the long drive out to Michigan. And then I realized like I had like almost 10 weeks in front of me and I didn't know anybody. So I'm this kid in middle school, no job, just kind of waiting for something to happen. And the something happened a few days in, I was out riding my bike and where we lived, we were on this like long street and uh, it was kind of out a little bit like in the country. And I was riding my bike down our street and I looked across, it was this big field that was completely empty. And on the other side of the field, there was a bank of houses and the street was on the other side of the houses. And between the houses, this kid comes down on a four-wheeler and I about lost my mind. I'm like, I have got to figure out who that kid is. And so I did figure out who that kid is and his name was Mark. And Mark, it turns out, was friends with another neighbor whose name was Adam and Adam had two four-wheelers. So the three of us were on four wheelers nonstop. It was the best summer ever. We became really good friends. And I ended up one day in Mark's basement playing Nintendo with him. This is in the middle of the summer. And as we're playing Nintendo, his mom yells down from the stairs. She's like, Mark, it's time to go to church. And even though I had known Mark for a few weeks, I mean, I was a middle schooler. So faith was not really the center point of our conversation. And so I looked at him and I was like, oh, you go to church? And he's like, yeah. And I said, so you're a Christian? And he's like, no, I'm a Lutheran. And in my head, I was like, a Lutheran? And I honestly, I had never heard the term Lutheran as a middle schooler. And right away, I became suspicious. I'm like, a Lutheran? Well, that's really different. Is this like a cult? Is this like some sort of secret society? Like, I didn't know what it was. Like, 
why, why didn't why didn't I ever know? Why didn't I ever hear about it? Maybe my parents didn't tell me because it's dangerous. And so I had all these weird like things going through my head. I just remember thinking Lutherans must be really odd since I've never heard of them. So fast forward a few months, my parents join a church. I start going to the youth group. And one of the exercises in the youth group was talking about evangelism and who we could share our faith with. And I went to a Christian middle school. So I was like, well, most everyone there is out because of course we're all Christians. But then I was like, oh, I know who I can witness to. I can witness to Mark because he's a Lutheran. And so I write his name down. This is part of the exercise. And our youth leader is like going like around the small group, like who did, whose name did you write down? Whose name did you write down? So he comes to me. He's like, Michael, whose name did you write down? I said, it's my neighbor, Mark. And he's like, okay. And I said, Mark's a Lutheran. And in my head saying that meant like he really needs to hear about Jesus. Mark's a Lutheran. And the youth leader, not kidding, got like really serious. And I will never forget this. He was like, all right, well, just be careful because they believe some funny things. And I'm like, what does that even mean? And it was, it was one of those moments where I'm like, man, what is going on? And then I began to see like signs for Lutheran churches everywhere, which made it even a little bit more interesting because it's like when you buy a new car and now you're aware of this car and then all of a sudden you see it everywhere. It's not that there's more cars on the road, it's that you're aware of it. So now I'm seeing like signs for Lutherans everywhere. And I'm wondering to myself, what do they do in those buildings? What kind of church is this? And this is what happens. Once you think you have it right, they, whoever they are, believe funny things. So be careful. And see, once the belief settles in that we've got the right perspective, then there's another growth, and that is the growth of defense, the wonderful world of Christian apologetics. It's learning to defend the faith. It's defending our beliefs. It's defending the truth, as I was always told is what it is. And we do this because we have the answers. And we have to make sure that the purity of our truth and content and answers stays 100% pure because we're right. So we need to guard and defend the truth. And we can because thankfully we have all the answers to all of the questions. And here's the nuance, by the way, when it comes to defending the faith. When questions about what we believe arrive, arise from the outside, when questions about what we believe come from, quote, as we were told, unbelievers, or people hostile to the faith, or people who are skeptical about our faith. That, that's fine. We're okay with them asking questions because we have the answers for them, and we can tell them what our tribe has deemed true, and we can point to the chapter and the verse in the Bible. But when those questions come from within the tribe, when questions arise from those who have the answers and know the defenses and still aren't content, that is a whole other thing. And what I learned really quickly is questions from within the tribe are not welcome because the job of people in the tribe is to answer the questions and defend the truth. Even more, if you're a leader or a pastor or an influencer in that tribe, one of your chief roles is to have the questions. One of your chief roles is to defend the faith. So any doubts or questions or expression of a sincere faith shift or dropping certain long-held beliefs that our tribe has propped up as true, that is not okay because there's an unspoken value and that's this. You are supposed to support the tribe. You're supposed to support the beliefs. You're supposed to continue to preach what, what we've long held to be true. And by the way, it's the same if there's any criticism from within or any kind of expressing dissent 
regarding the beliefs or opinions of the tribe. You can't do this if you're a part of the tribe. Now, when it comes from the outside, we can shrug it off. Well, because it's that group or it's those people or it's that different tribe. I actually remember being a part of a Christian group for a while who spoke openly, almost with a measure of pride about being ridiculed by the outside world. It was kind of there like, oh, this is how we're persecuted. This is how Christians are persecuted. Maybe you've heard this kind of thing. And there's a sense of we should, we should celebrate when persecution comes. And so if you, people were ridiculed, criticized, skeptical, whatever it else, and they almost seem to enjoy it. But when someone from inside the tribe does this, when someone who's a part of this thing that grew up within it um, offers criticism or calls BS on a particular belief or expresses a dissenting opinion, there's not celebration or an appreciation or like a measure of pride over this. Think about it this way. Think about the prophets. And I'm not just talking about the prophets in the Bible, though I surely am talking about them, but I'm talking about all of the prophets since then, prophetic voices in our world that have offered up criticism. All of them, by the way, all of them have either been killed or been the uh, victims of violence because they ask questions, they level piercing observations, they express dissent, they call people out. And it's important to note, uh, prophets were on the inside. Prophets are not outside, another, a part of another tribe, because they, they wouldn't have the passion. They wouldn't necessarily care. Prophets are a part of the tribe, and they rise up, and they begin calling things out that need to be called out. They, they beg the people to not lose the vision of, of what it is the Spirit is doing. They express dissent. They, they, they indict people. I mean, there's all sorts of things that they do. And it always comes from one who's a part of the tribe, one from within that says, this is not right. And then those people, those from within the tribe, uh, the, the prophets, they go on and get themselves killed. And they, they get killed because the, the dominant powers in the tribe are like, we, we have a good thing going here. That person can't be allowed to live. Nowadays, we just character assassinate people on Facebook or say horrible things to people as a way of like dismissing them or killing them because people never behave so badly as they do when they believe they're defending God. That, that is, you can, you can hold on to that one all day because it's absolutely true. A, a friend of mine recently who's never been a part of uh, the Christian tradition, her and I were talking about uh, bringing together a group of faith leaders. And she's like, well, why don't you call like, you know, a bunch of Christians and blah, 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 and this group and that group. And so I said to her, hey, just know I, I'm, I'm not, I don't have the favor of all of those people right now. And she's like, what do you mean you don't have the favor of those people? You're all Christians. And I was like, yeah, I get it. But just know some of them are a part of a tribe that um, while I still um, have an appreciation for it, I said goodbye to that tribe. Like I peaced out. I'm, I left. And I said, now you've never been a part of the tribe. So if you were to show up like at a meal with these people, they would welcome you to the table. No problem. If I showed up at a meal with these people, there'd be like some suspicion, maybe some wounding, whatever it is. Like when you're a part of something and you leave it, um, people are not inclined to be as generous toward you as they are towards someone who's never been a part of the tribe and shows up. And she was like, what? And, I, and so I said to her, this is true, not just of Christianity. It seems to be true almost of everything. And, and so again, when you're a part of the tribe and you rise up and go, yeah, I don't want to call myself a Christian anymore, or I, I'm genuinely losing my faith, people within the tribe, oftentimes do not respond well. And so for most people, at what point do you ask questions? 
at what point do you say like, so the whole like hell thing, can we chat about that? Or, hey, my best friend uh, just came out to me as gay and she acts way more like Jesus than our pastor does. Or like, hey, the whole Bible without error thing. Yeah, I'm not buying that. You see, you've witnessed what happens to people who do this. And you learn really to kind of keep your mouth shut. And, and by the way, let me say this. This is not helpful. This is never, ever, ever helpful. And the thing is, the less questions are encouraged, the less dissent and disagreement are part of the fabric of a tribe, the less challenging norms is welcomed, the less we listen to and hold on to criticism, then more and more what begins to happen is precedent and custom become the rule. We've never done it that way. We've always believed this. If you just understood that, that, that. And by the way, those are terrible reasons for not doing something. And the more power in rules and accepted practices and holding traditions with allegiances expected, the less questions are welcomed. And by the way, this is unhealthy. And it's unhealth is that it creates many situations like the one Harrison Sampson. Now, I'm not saying this is what happened to them because I don't know, but it creates many situations um, like them. And I know this because, by the way, I have sat with and spoken with, I'm not kidding, hundreds, maybe now it's even like over a thousand people over the years who've, quote, left the faith because of a stifling environment that says, do not push against this. Do not ask the questions. Do not look behind the curtain. And it feels like you can't breathe or you can't even be honest or you can't talk openly or you can't express your questions. So you either go against the rules and get roasted or you walk away. And many people see it that way. It feels like it's an either or. I'm either going to shut up and stay within or I'm just going to walk away or I'm going to stay within and ask questions and just get pummeled. Uh, this spring, I received an email from one of our listeners who thanked me for this podcast and expressed that I'm kind of the only voice right now in this person's life that's engaging and entertaining the questions that are burning within him. He went on to tell me um, that his wife doesn't even know I, he listens to this podcast. And there's a, there was like a nervousness in him. And he also expressed this sense of isolation. Like, I'm alone. No one else is. And what I was able to tell him is, hey, man, it might feel like you're alone, but this is what I know is uh, – you're in a room filled with people who have all the same questions you do, but you're developing the inner strength and courage to actually give voice to these things. And so let me say this before we keep going. If you're listening and you identify with what I've said so far, and you're in a context where you're like, I can't, I can't raise my hand. I can't ask the questions. I can't criticize. I can't call BS. I can't, like I have all these things happening or I'm reading this author and I have to keep it secret, which by the way, so many pastors are in this, in this place. They can't really preach what they are dealing with for fear that they'll get fired and their livelihood will be gone. If you're listening and that's you, I want you to imagine that you and I are sitting at my kitchen table, which is exactly where I'm recording right now. And I'm looking you right in the eye. And I want to tell you this, you are not alone. You are not in a place where you are all by yourself. 
There are literally millions of people from within the Christian tradition who have these sincere questions, not because they don't care about God or life or faith or spirituality or the Bible or the Christian tradition. It's because they care so much about it that they want to go deeper. And if you're in that place, I am so sorry that you feel isolated and that you feel alone. And my hope is, is that you'd reach out, maybe reach out to me. Maybe we just create a network of people who can come together, not to get our questions answered, but just so someone can put their arm around us and say, yeah, I have questions too. And then we can actually discover that uh, doubt is actually an expression of faith, that we ask questions about things that cause us interest, that we, we learn not by getting all the right answers, but actually by asking questions and exploring further and further. So if this is you, like I'm, I'm so deeply sorry that you're in this place and I've been there and it hurts and it feels disorienting and you wonder, am I losing my faith? And you wonder, are people going to stick with me if I actually give voice to these things? So reach out. I'd love for you to reach out and maybe, maybe we just create like an online community or I don't know, I'm just thinking out loud, but truly, 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 you are not alone. I want you to know that. And it's not that you have to stay within or that you have to walk away. And I, and I say this because I'm still here. And now I've been in the structures that don't dignify questions. And I've been in those structures, by the way, as an influencer and as a leader and as a pastor. There was one time um, years ago where I was a part of a church and we would do the service. Like we would have some music, of course, and then like the offering and then the preaching. And then at the end of the sermon, I would always say, hey, there's some question cards in the like pew in front of you or whatever, the rack in front of you. And if you have a question, write it down. And while during the singing, some people are going to come down, hand the cards to the aisle, and then I'll come up and respond to some of the questions. And so we would have a song, people would write down questions, they hand them off to me. And then I would sit in the front row and like race through the questions and try to get my mind right to respond to some of them. And then I jump back up on the platform and that's how we'd finish the night. Well, this one uh, evening, this, there's this room and there's like near a thousand people in this room. And so it's a pretty big crowd. Um, and I say that because of the response was pretty overwhelming. <laughs> I don't remember what the question is, but I remember the, the, the line that I said. And I remember the line that I said, because it was repeated to me like 7,000 times. I said, theology is fluid. And in this room packed with people, there was like this, <gasps> like this big gasp. I mean, it was, it was an un, it was like someone hit the panic button. People freaked out. You know what it was like? It was like, remember if you've seen Anchorman when Ron Burgundy drops the F-bomb at the end of the episode and everyone loses their mind and he doesn't really know what's going on. That's how I felt. People, people were terrified. And within no time, I was in a room with like four or five leaders from the church who were like, whoa, 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 you cannot say this theology is not fluid. And I was saying things to them like, well, don't you realize that what we say we believe is true today wasn't true like a thousand years ago? Like I was genuinely, I think maybe a little naive. I thought I had more wiggle room. And I remember one guy said, here's the deal, man. I like my neat packaged theology. I was like, what? Like, don't you want to take out the contents every once in a while and shake them up and see if they withstand scrutiny and look at what's on the other side. Like, I, I like my neat package theology. Now, this is the world I left. Now, it was a world that offered me enough where I could grow out of it. But if I really wanted to explore the questions I was asking, it was a world that I also needed to move on from. It was a world that was at one time 
keep in mind, brand new. It was a world that was at one time pushing the envelope, representing new ideas. And here's the thing. I'm not sure what Harris or Samson mean by Christian or by losing their faith, but this is what I do know. If what they are referring to is somehow defined by the world that I grew up in, in other words, if the world that I grew up in is the definition of Christian, then I would not call myself a Christian either. If being a Christian is about holding fast to a very um, particular set of beliefs, if it believes that this one tradition, this one story, this one way of thinking is the single exclusive way of seeing things, and really it's only like 100 years old, if that's what Christian means, right, then I'm not a Christian either. And yes, I would. you could say I genuinely lost my faith in that small capital or lowercase t tradition. And like Samson, I'm much freer because of it. But here's what's interesting. I'm still here, still calling myself a Christian. So I must mean something different. And this is what began to happen to me. I began to learn not why all the, all the reasons the Christian tradition was wrong. Instead, I began to learn how big, broad, wide, deep, high, massive the Christian tradition is. Oh, and by the way, Lutherans are a part of that tradition. <laughs> so I guess my friend Mark, wherever he is, is going to be okay. Um, but all joking aside, we're in a massive tradition. And the tribe that I was a part of is a small part of that tradition. But for a long time, I was told and I believed that we were the whole Christian story, but we're not the whole story. And by the way, no one expression of Christianity is the whole story. We are all one bit. We're one piece. We're one expression. And I point this out because within, the, uh, within Christianity, there's all sorts of teaching and writing and exploration that is beautiful and inviting and curious and expansive. Um, things like theosis, which in the words of the uh, early church father, Athanasius, God became human so we could become gods. This is the idea. It's that we can be got by grace what Jesus is by nature. Now, this is a tradition that's long been taught in the Eastern Orthodox Church and before the Eastern Church and the Western Church, or we could say the Orthodox Church and the Catholic Church split over a thousand years ago. There was a lot of people teaching this. Um, and many, by the way, have held on to this idea that we can participate in the divine nature, that we can actually be caught up in the life of God and become an expression of the life of God to the same extent that Jesus was, that we can be by grace what Jesus is by nature. And that's a really, really poor summary of it. But um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer talked about this. C.S. Lewis talked about this. N.T. Wright is talking about this. And it's just this invitation um, to go more deeply into the life of God. I never heard this growing up. But it's not like it was never taught or it isn't currently being taught. Um, I, I heard the teaching about panentheism, that God is all and is in all. Now, this is not pantheism, which is like my dog laying on the floor over there is a God and the tree outside my front yard is a God. Panentheism means that God is in all those things. And this began to transform how I began to see things and people, the earth, our universe. It shifted my awareness to the place that everything, all things and all places, it's all sacred. Uh, learning about the sacred feminine, sacred feminine and the power, the beauty, and the passion of the divine when seen as a woman, when seen as a mother, when seen as a midwife. And by the way, there's no shortage of verses in the Bible that picture God as a woman, as a mother. It's learning about the, the history and the development of hell within the Christian tradition. I mean, that opened me up to begin asking some serious questions as to exactly what hell is and why so many seem to like have this death grip on the idea of hell. There's original sin, the belief that we are born totally and completely depraved. 
but not everyone taught that either, which means within the larger tradition, there are other voices to be heard on that matter. And what about the meaning of the crucifixion? I mean, there's all sorts of theories as to why Jesus died. And on the resurrection, well, there's lots of ideas behind that too. And by the way, all of this is caught up within the Christian tradition. Can we talk about that? Can we ask questions? Does it make you even interested hearing this going like, oh, wait, what? Huh? I thought we had it all nailed down. No, because this thing is so big. We're talking about the divine here. We're talking about this human being named Jesus, fully God, fully divine, who kicked around on this planet and invited us into all of it. You really think we can nail this down with like 12 propositional statements? No, we need to talk about it. We need to ask questions. And so for me, I began wondering, were these things intentionally hidden by my small tribe? Or maybe I wasn't curious enough to ask. And more and more, as I was reading and wondering aloud, I began to see the invitation to live into the massiveness of this capital T tradition, this larger Christian tradition with all of its complexities and all of its contradictions and all of its beauty and all of its mess. It invites us to think, to join the discussion, to ask, to to be a part of the conversation that's been around for thousands of years and to see that we are invited to live as though all things are ours which is we'll talk more about on uh, the third part of this three-part series. You see, this is a different way than holding on to just like one doctrinal statement along with a specific theological bent developed and put in order by a few with the expectation that you and me and anyone else who's a part of this thing are going to hold on to these exact beliefs because we have it right. I mean, this is really the world I grew up in. I mean, it's kind of a, maybe an unfair characterization of it, but I remember at one point thinking, so like, there's only going to be like, what, like six, 7,000 people in heaven? I mean, <laughs> that's smaller than a mid-sized town in Iowa, for God's sake. This is really what we're, we're giving ourselves up to. And, and this is how I would describe it. Christianity for me decades ago was like a nicely appointed home. I mean, even like a trendy home. You know what I mean? We had like quartz countertops and all that and this stuff. And it was comfortable. And I, I enjoyed living there. And it was not incredibly big, but it had everything I needed to live a content life. And what happened over time is that in the living room, there was this one door that for like years and years and years, I never really noticed. I never really asked questions about it. Maybe it was just in my mind, like, oh, it's just a closet or whatever. But over time, I began like looking at this door going, wait a second, I've never seen anyone open it. What, what is this door about? What's behind the door? And then one day I opened the door. And what I realized as I opened the door is the door actually led to a much larger home. So Christianity for me was this small, little, tiny home that was nicely appointed. And then one day I opened a door and I'm like, whoa, wait a second. Um, we're only living like in one wing of this massive house. I opened the door and it led to a much, much larger home. And I'm like, wait, wait, I've only been living in one small part of this home, oh my goodness, Christianity is massive. Like Christianity has a, has a patio, it has a pool. Like it has, this is a massive thing that we're a part of. Not just this little tiny house that we've been told is the whole deal. You see, the small house I grew up in is still a part of the larger house. So let me just say that. It's still a part of the larger house. It's just that I don't go into that wing of the house very much anymore. Now, I still stop by once in a while, and there are things from that tradition that honestly still feel like home. 
but there's just so much of this house to be enjoyed and so many fascinating and compelling people who've been living in the larger house for so long that I don't just want to stay in the one small part anymore. I can honor that part. I can go back and visit it, but man, like Christianity has a pool, right? And, and this is what pulled me out of, out of that, uh, the wing of that house, I should say, um, is that it's something that's so much bigger. It's led me to greater freedom. It's led me to less fear. And by the way, let me just say this. One of the most operative things I encounter within Christianity is fear. And what's so fascinating about this is that John says God is love. And he also says that perfect love drives out fear. And yet what I see in so many um, places within Christianity is people peddling fear in a way that few do except for politicians, which I find troubling and interesting at the same time. The Christian religion is built on the belief and worship of a God who is love. And yet so many Christians live every day and root their religious beliefs in fear, like full on terror of God. But I digress. That's just... So that, I don't know, it just popped in my head. Anyway, what led me to a bigger view of God, others, our universe, and a healthier view of myself and more curiosity about our tradition and other traditions. What's led all of me to this is not walking away from Christianity, but walking more fully into it. And now I'm like more and more and more curious to see how deep this tradition goes, this big, broad, wide, deep, and high and massive tradition that we call Christianity. Now you might be listening going, hang on. <laughs> Do you know about all the crap within the Christian tradition? Like, did you find that in the house? When you walked around, did, did you see like that people have used Christianity to perpetrate violence and genocide, that they've built evil empires on the name of Jesus, that they've tossed the word Christian right before the word nation. And then they went on to commit atrocities and construct oppressive systems. Like, did you find that in the house? Yes. Absolutely, I did. Uh, and I'm aware to the extent that I'm able to be that there are local churches and there's even denominations filled with Christians that have um, done awful things with money and covered it up, that have um, committed sexual abuse and covered that up to protect their own interests. I know scores of people who've been screwed over by self-described Jesus-loving Christians. Um, I see it. I know it to the extent that I'm able. And um, I've been complicit in it because I work for this thing. Like I'm a, I'm a pastor for, for God's sake. Um, and uh, sometimes I've spoken out against it, but hear me. So hear me say this, the Christian tradition is super messed up. The Christian tradition has all kinds of stains on it, stains that will never be washed out of our collective memory. And I would say this, they never should be washed out of our collective memory. Um, they should never be overlooked because in overlooking them, we will continue to repeat the very same sins. They should not be overlooked because doing so ignores people who've been abused, ignores people who've been oppressed, ignores people who've been swindled, and ignores people who've been spiritually abused, ignores the damage that the church has done to people and the way it's wounded people. To ignore it or to pretend it doesn't exist or to say, oh, that was in the past. No, we cannot do this. The stains on the church should be held in memory. The sins of the church, I'll go this far, should be memorialized, never forgotten. We need to own it. We need to see it for what it is. We need to talk about it. We need to repent. We need to lament over it. This is the only way we will continue to grow. And I would say this, one of the sins of the church right now, and I use this capital C church, is we don't want to talk about 
all the things that the church has done that are terrible. But I would say that we have to talk about them because if we don't, we're just going to repeat it. And, and I think when it comes to both the beauty and the, the sickness, the evil that the church has, has been a part of, I think we ultimately say we have to make a choice. Like, do we toss the whole thing? And by the way, some have, and I understand that. Like I talked about my friend uh, a few weeks ago um, or a few days ago who said, I'm done with it. And I have a lot of friends who are in that place. Like, I'm done with it. I'm gone. And, and I understand that. And in listening to them and learning from them, I respect that. So do we toss the whole thing or do we say like, no, but we need to embrace it. But here's the thing. If we embrace it, we have to embrace all of it. And for me at this point, I've chosen to embrace all of it because honestly, I don't know of one single tradition or system or organization or religion or structure that has not perpetrated and or participated in systemic evil. It's not just religion. It's structures. It's because humans are the ones who create this. Now, some people are like, this is why we need to burn them all down. You just need to take them all down. And you know what? That may work. But I'm willing to bet we will build something in its place. And whatever it is that we build, even if you don't want to call it an institution or whatever is built in its place, because it will be populated by human beings, whatever's built will inevitably perpetuate and or participate in systemic evil. And to think that we as human beings somehow have arrived at a place where we're going to do something differently and no longer will evil be a part of the equation is actually to thumb your nose at thousands of years of human history that teaches otherwise. It's to ignore history. And if you ignore history, you're doomed to repeat it. To think that somehow we're just going to burn down all the current institutions and build something in its place that's going to be pure and like wonderful and not do all of this feels like a combination of, of ignorance and naivete and arrogance, quite honestly. Um, and, and by the way, I see this in very subtle ways coming up in people all of the time where like they've left Christianity behind and in their own heart or mind seem to have like evolved to a higher place altogether. But what's interesting is I have a lot of friends who are in that place and, and I, we, we've talked about these things um, who grew up in conservative churches, churches that were fervently evangelistic, churches that were all about like um, apologetics that could like dismantle one religious belief and build up their own. And even though they've abandoned all that, there's now like some of the most fervent evangelists and apologists for whatever they believe in right now. Like I have one friend who cannot stop talking about why atheism is the best and most rational belief. There was one time we were together and I was like, hey, you sound like an evangelical, like practicing apologetics, except you're talking about why there's no God. He, he didn't find it funny at first, um, but it really is funny. And, and, and I point this out, by the way, to say this, and I'm not joking here now. Many of us have been wounded by the church to different degrees. Um, we feel like we've been misled. We've been duped. We've been screwed over. We've been abused, like whatever descriptor. So like, I don't, don't hear me playing fast and loose with this and shrugging it off. Okay. And in doing so, a lot of people have just bailed on the whole enterprise. They're like, you need, it just needs to be burned down. It needs to go away. They're done with Christianity. I'm not a Christian. But the way they live their life after Christianity is very similar to how they live their life when they identify as Christian. So like the way they practice their faith, whatever that is now, is very similar to the way they practice their faith when they were a part of the conservative thing that they left. It's just that their particular beliefs are different. 
Um, so they're still evangelizing, but just for a different thing. They, they still have a list of rules and are still very legalistic about it, but it's just a different list, list of rules. It's possible, and, and I want to remind you, I've said this to many of my friends who I love dearly. It's possible that what's actually happening is that they've not made peace with the tradition they grew up within. Now, I'm not trying to win anyone back. I really am not. Like if you if you're listening and you're like I, I bailed on Christianity, and I think this whole podcast up until now has been asinine. Totally fine. Um, but what I am trying to do is invite all of us um, to consider what does it look like to make peace with the world you grew up in. What does it look like to heal? What does it look like to say like that big structure out there in all of its exterior forms has wounded me? Which means that instead of just throwing rocks at that, I also need to tend to and care for my own heart, my own soul, my own spirit. See, it's possible that you felt stifled within Christianity, but if you give it a moment, you might find that you're still very stifled right here, right now. You see, for me, I'm still here. I still consider myself a part of the Christian tradition, and I'm okay with saying that I'm a Christian, though I find the identity that I used to find in that particular label like the security of like, I'm going to heaven, can't wait, going to see Jesus, can't wait, like the song we used to sing in camp. That means less and less to me. Um, for me, it's a, it means something because of what I've just expressed. It's a larger tradition. It's connected to Jesus, who I still try to follow. And it's inviting me to something bigger. And some days, by the way, I'm more happy about saying I'm a Christian than others. And some days, like I say, um, oftentimes I'm like, I, I'm a Christian agnostic, like on Tuesdays and Thursdays, <laughs> because the more I learn about God, the more I know, I don't know. And that's kind of like the idea of agnostic. I don't know, but here I am. I'm still here in the midst of this beautiful, complex, imperfect, sometimes wonderful, other times, absolutely awful thing called Christianity. I'm not where I was, not because I walked away from the faith, but because I chose to walk more fully into the faith. And I'm still in a place where I want to see how deep this thing goes. I want to continue to walk more fully into it. So what are next steps as we listen? Well, first I'd say this, what questions do you have that you've been, that have been like burning within you? And here would be my encouragement, write them down. Then find someone who you believe you can trust and ask the question. By the way, just writing the question down might feel so cathartic. Write it down and then ask the question of someone, not as a way, by the way, of like finding the answer to the burning questions, but as a way of interacting with those who've asked the questions for centuries. So read, study, develop your own thoughts, poke holes in the thoughts, and then ask more new and more helpful questions. Keep moving, keep pushing. Chances are you're going to see how big the house really is. Second, read books from other perspectives. Um, don't just read books that confirm and affirm your previously held beliefs. There's a great book titled The Good Heart. It's the Dalai Lama's commentary on the teachings of Jesus, and it is so good. So read things like that. Push in the new territory with your reading. Find stuff that will make you furrow your brow, that will confuse you, that will push you, that will make you uncomfortable. And don't just swallow the whole pill. Read critically. And be like, no, I, I don't buy that. I think this is off. Like, I've... I've read things that, that stretch me and I have to take the book to someone else and be like, have you read this? Help me out with this. And it's so incredibly helpful. Uh, years ago, there was a book on my desk and someone came in and pointed at it and was like, are you reading that book? And I said, yeah, you shouldn't read that book. And they went off on me. And in my head, I was thinking, 
I'm reading the right thing. So go, go find material, blogs, whatever it is, podcasts, um, of people who disagree with you and then interact with it thoughtfully and do it with others. Third thing is, um, finding this community. I said earlier that if you feel like you're alone, I'm so sorry. And that I mean that so sincerely, but there are communities springing up everywhere where this is beginning to happen, where people are beginning to say like, enough is enough. I need to ask questions. And it's worth remembering the, the human journey, not even the Christian, the human journey was not meant to be um, taken alone. And so how does it look like to begin finding that genuine community, which by the way, if you step into a new community, you might have to go through the pain of losing your current community. It's not a guarantee, but it often happens. And then I would say this, maybe the next step is simply beginning to make peace within. You've been wounded, you've been hurt, you've been abused, you've been exploited, you've been silenced, you've been overlooked, you've been ignored. You, you, You can't even stand the word Christian, let alone say that you are one. And so my hope is that you would find peace, that you would pursue hope and healing and greater wholeness and greater health so that you would no longer live in a stifled world that was created for you, but that you would come to live in greater and greater freedom. And so maybe this is your first step. It's calling a friend. It's uh, seeing a counselor. It's talking with a trusted mentor. It's just, just making peace. And my hope, by the way, in all of this is that we will be those who move toward greater freedom and less fear and more hope, that we would be those who embrace the full Christian tradition and all of its mess and all of its beauty and all of its complexity and all of its simplicity so that ultimately we might be drawn towards something greater than ourselves. So with that, on the next episode, part two of I'm Still Here, we will talk about the historical Jesus and his really interesting relationship with religion. Like, what was he doing exactly? And like, how must Jesus feel knowing there's a religion named after him? I, mean, I Part of me thinks I'm going to get through this three-part series and be like, ah, I'm not a Christian anymore. But, uh, and then on part three, I will share how the Christian tradition points beyond the Christian tradition to an expansive universal God and why this should give us great hope. So I cannot wait to share those other two with you. But for today... This is it. The first episode of season three. As I said before, it's so great to be back together with you. The first of three episodes titled, I'm Still Here. Thank you for joining with us again. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you.